Hey, this is Sadie. You're listening to Trafficked. This is episode 10, take two. Hi, I'm Jess LaPlante. I'm here again co-hosting. We've already recorded this episode once, but the acoustics <laughs> on my bedroom floor are not ideal. Oh, I forgot we were going to shout out Aunt Mary first. My great Aunt Mary listens. She's probably the only listener, but regardless, thanks Aunt Mary. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Aunt Mary is the shit. Here we go. Today's subject, I guess, it's it's difficult because it's focusing on a trafficker, David Brown, when I think a lot of the information and a lot of the things I, I pulled from focus on Cinnamon Brown, who you might have heard of. I know you have because we recorded this one. <laughs> but it's for listeners, it's very possible you've heard the name Cinnamon Brown. She was a very fascinating story. Shannon co-hosted the Sylvia Likens mm-hmm. case, and she was telling me about Cinnamon Brown. And it's funny, I've been doing these trafficking cases. So when she was telling me about it, even though it was only a few sentences, can't affirmatively say Cinnamon was a trafficking victim. But I really think the way that her father acted sounds like a trafficker. So I almost did the work backwards in a Mm -hmm. way. It turns out by the end, Cinnamon Brown was 100% a trafficking victim in my opinion. Yeah. I can't wait to hear yours again. Mm -hmm. Maybe you disagree. I don't. We'll see. (laughs) I I rarely disagree with you. Okay, are you ready to just jump right back in? So let's start with the background. David Brown was the son of a Midwest mechanic who grew up in Los Angeles. At 18 years old, he meets 15-year-old Brenda Kurgis. People who knew the couple said, despite his pockmarked face and gut, we've literally done this once already, but I meant to Google that. Do you know what that means? Pockmarked? Yeah. It's scars. That's a hateful thing to say. He's a terrible person. Yeah, well, generally from acne. That's how I know it in reference to, but it's like... Uh, divots. She has divoted like, scars. Okay. Yeah. Heard. He deserves it. People who knew the couple described him as pockmarked face and had a substantial gut, but he was a smooth talker and managed to quote, woo Cinnamon's mother with love poems and such. End quote. Gross. Same. Ew. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> no. Okay. That was still worth it. So. <laughs> David and Brenda get married after Cinnamon's born. Well, really, while Brenda's pregnant. Mm -hmm. We all love a good shotgun wedding. Who doesn't? If you impregnate me, I expect you to marry me. Baby, I will. (laughs) I pinky promise if I impregnate you, I will marry you on the spot. Gross when it's an 18-year-old to 15-year-old, though. Agreed. In my opinion. Okay. Anyway, they get married. On July 3rd, 1970, Cinnamon Darlene Brown is born. If she's born July 3rd, does that make her a cancer? Yeah. Is she a cancer or is she a Gemini? She's a cancer. Cool. That's funny. I just wonder. July, right? That's my rising sign. That's your rising sign? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's funny. I just met in general. It's when my mom about their and my youngest sign. sister's sun sign. And sign. it's Ricky's sun sign. Your okay, brother. sun sign is what I was going for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a Scorpio. Okay. I have no idea. I know what you are. <laughs> I'm aware. David appeared to be a devout father. As this story proves, he was not that. Mm -hmm. But at the time, Brenda really only had issues with him as a husband. And so that's what she focused on. She described him as a control freak who demanded sex on command as often as three times a day. Fucking gross. This would have shocked me to my core before I started this podcast. But since starting it, it is such a thing. This is actually how traffickers, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. seem to kind of develop this manipulation and this relationship. Mm -hmm. It's almost by starting by controlling the sex and the time of the day and when it happens. Mm -hmm. Because it's normalized to the victims. But it's just, it's not normalized for most people, I think. No. And we say this all the time. Consent is so key. And demanding sex from someone when you want is not consent essential unless there's a pre-existing kink relationship where you've established right. that but if this is a 50 shades of gray thing you have a contract you laid it out 
different story. Mm -hmm. If you are unilaterally deciding for both of us when you're going to orgasm, and I probably won't realistically, that's just you being a rapist. Yeah, that's rape. That is rape. So in 1971, David started working jobs processing data. And by 1973, he was working at a business called CalComp. Doesn't really matter. When he notices Lori Carpenter, who is a co-worker of his, and they start having an affair. Brenda moves out of their apartment and takes Cinnamon with her. And then she divorces David when she's 19 and he's 22. Oh, really, really young. A baby. Raising a baby. So maybe I should drink a glass of wine before every episode. I think you should. It makes you fun. It's like I'm looser. We uh, did last time. <laughs> I know, and it was really fun. It was, it was my favorite recording, which is why I'm so mad you can't use it. Which is like, go figure. <laughs> so he marries Lori before the ink's dry on the divorce papers, and they move into a house in California. That's just background as well. Did you know that in the state of Oklahoma, you cannot get married within six months of your divorce being finalized. Is that just a fun fact, or are you speaking from uh, experience on that one? I may or may not be speaking from experience that I learned with my father. Yeah, I learned that from my mother. Cheers. Cheers. I love that fun fact. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> this is a safe space. You're the worst. Go back. Where do you want to go back to? The thing. Oh, this story. Okay, so <laughs> the second marriage is crumbling. This isn't funny. David notices a bunch of teenage girls living two doors down from him. He saw them and would frequently put on muscle shirts and work on his car. He would also take little girls to buy ice cream. And every adult who witnessed this was like, you're a creep. But like when you're a child and when someone is going out of their way to give you attention and give you free ice cream, your first thought isn't creep. Especially if they're your neighbor and not a stranger. Especially if they're they're your neighbor. I think more often than not, teenagers and children specifically Mm -hmm. want to trust adults. Just like naturally, which is fucked up. You're right. These neighborhood girls shouldn't have ever had to have been shielded from their predatory. As children and teenagers, we see adults as authority figures who have it together. Whether that's the case or not. No matter how early you get exposed to the fact that that's not the case. Regardless, you're like, that's an adult who knows right from wrong. Right. And so That's you, you trust that they're going to look out for you and you don't think about the motives behind, I think, especially sexual motives behind I a agree. kind gesture. And I think as well, it just shows is it sucks whenever kids aren't getting that attention from a supportive parent who does love them, but has to, for whatever reason, just not be present as mm-hmm. often. And then they fall victim to the predatory neighbor who's giving you attention. But that's not attention. That's positive. And it's just there's no way as a child to distinguish between those. Like you said, kids aren't equipped to be like that man's full of shit mm-hmm. he's creepy like that's right. just not what happens exactly like you said if anything they're bolstered by this sense of belonging oh i'm mature i was picked and it's right like, no we talk about but it that makes sense too. it makes sense mm-hmm. we feel it i think that's why we talk about it so much because yeah. it's such an understandable temptation mm-hmm. it's just not true right at the end of the day that's just not accurate unfortunately I wish it was. So the adults were all like, he's really creepy. But to teenagers and younger people, he was tolerable and even appealing. Mm-hmm. Their mother, Ethel Bailey, had 11 kids that she was trying to raise. And David saw this. Ethel didn't know it yet, but David was about to become public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. We already established Lori isn't invested in this marriage. And so David quickly kind of moves on to something else. He introduces himself to Ethel's family and he confides in her that he has colon cancer and only six months to live. And he says he's just wondering if some of the teenage girls who he's seen walking from their house to school every day would be willing to come over and help keep his house in order. Which to clarify, 
He was not sick. He was not sick. He never had cancer. Straight up bullshit. I think it takes such a specific kind of person to lie about having having cancer, cancer. having terminal cancer. Yes, it does. I agree. And he gave himself a time limit on how long he could keep this lie going. You'd think. I would never advocate for compulsive liars Mm -hmm. or pathological liars. But if you're going to lie to people, why would you give a time frame that immediately impeaches you? Ethel said, quote, how do you say no to a dying man? I had no reason to doubt him then. End quote. Emphasis on then. Mm-hmm. David starts convincing Ethel's daughters to also commit various crimes for him, like stealing tools off the back of pickup trucks and bringing them to him. People also said he was sneaking off three to four times a day to have sex in different places. Um, and he had a kink for control, which mm-hmm. we know. But that's still excessive even for maybe your, your friends that are happily married. I just couldn't imagine digging three to four times a day to the point that your relatives and friends know that when you sneak off, you are satisfying an uncontrollable urge. Mm-hmm. Three to four times a day, I think paired with the fact that he's demanding sex from his partners at the same time. It's indicative of something way more severe that just nobody cared enough to, to dig into. Mm-hmm. You can't even really classify that as nymphomania because that's the difference between one of the many differences between rape and sex is the power imbalance. And so he wasn't even sneaking off to have sex. I'm sure he was sneaking off to demand sex. Yeah. That's a very fair point that I hadn't considered. You're probably right. Okay. At the same time, kind of random. He was also gaining notoriety for wrecking cars and scamming insurance companies so that he Mm. could just take that money and buy a nicer, cooler car and do the same shit, even though none of that was factually supported or verifiable. How is he not flagged for insurance fraud? I want to say that because this is the 80s, he's probably the reason they are so up our asses about getting in wrecks now. So if you're ever really frustrated with an insurance person, you can thank David Brown. But you know, whenever you hear like a really stupid thing and you're Mm. like, someone did that, too specific to be accidental. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, why we get these things. You're not wrong. Back to our story. Lori divorces David after four-ish years, so he's 26, and he soon starts dating Pam Bailey, one of Ethel's underage daughters, mm-hmm. and she's nearly a de- decade younger than him. Um, I think we decided last time we did this that she couldn't have. She had to have been like nine years younger than him. Yeah. So Ethel has 11 kids. Pam is David's first girlfriend of Ethel's daughters, but she will not be the last. Mm -hmm. So just for listener clarity, Pam is number one. She's nine years younger. They start dating. Have we figured out how old she was? At the time? So if he's 26, so she's likely 17. Mm -hmm. Gross. Agreed. 17 is still too young to date a 26-year-old. People always try to make the argument that 17 is basically an adult. 18 isn't an adult. You're legally an adult, but you're a fucking child. Just mm-hmm. walking around, like, bullshitting to everybody. Like, one day you wake up and you feel more like you have a sense of it. But no. Kind of. Kind of. But barely. Like, it's just not even guaranteed. Anyway, so when they break up, he immediately starts dating her younger sister, Linda. She was 13 when they started dating. Oh. <sighs> Linda had a twin brother named Alan, and when Alan was interviewed about everything that happened, he said, quote, David was always a guy who liked having younger girls, little girls. That and the money was what he was always after. That's disturbing, to say the least. Yes, it is. So Linda ends up being David's third wife. They initially marry in June of 1979 in Las Vegas when she's 17, but David kicks her out and divorced her after two months. She likely had no idea, but we can infer that this was because he started a job at another data company and met a coworker named Cindy. And it's just, we've seen this before. I don't believe there's any possible way like Linda did anything. Mm-hmm. I think she was a child and then he found a new victim. He right. was like, okay, bye, new shiny toy. Mm-hmm. 
So he divorces her. He meets Cindy, a.k.a. lucky wife number four. And at this point, David's used to a very specific type of marriage. I love that you said whenever he was sneaking off three or four times a day, it wasn't for consensual sex Mm -hmm. is what we're aiming at. And we know that based on victim testimony. It's not even a speculation. Mm -hmm. So Cindy was different. She didn't meet his idea of a victim in terms of what the other women were doing for him. They would be like, this is demanding. You might have control issues, but they kind of oblige. Mm-hmm. We didn't know. We, nobody talked about consent. Anyway, so that's why strong Cindy was divorced the quickest because she was independent and laughed in his face essentially when he tried to control her. It didn't take him long to get Linda back and he remarried her. So she's both wife number three and wife number five. Poor girl. My uncle Chuck actually got married, divorced, remarried, and re-divorced to the same woman as well. Oh, really? Fucked up fun fact. Yes, he did. Mm. The more you know. So after their remarriage, Linda and David rented a quaint little home in Garden Grove, California. And soon after they move in, Linda gives birth to a baby girl named Crystal. And eventually Cinnamon, David's 14-year-old daughter from his first marriage, joins their family too. Trigger warning. The next part is grueling and it doesn't really let up. I can give a warning whenever the story is less upsetting, but we're going to be in the trenches for a minute, you guys. In addition to the baby crystal, Cinnamon, and the happy couple, Patricia and Linda. David and Linda. Okay. Patricia Ann, aka Patty, Linda's kid sister, asks to move in with them when she's 11. Her story is that she'd been molested by a family member at a younger age, and she wrote a letter to her mom explaining, quote, she'd always felt like the black sheep, end quote. She felt her home was too chaotic, and she liked the special attention David was providing for her, Mm. quote, but living with the Browns felt like she had a family. David treated her real special. He'd let her sit on his lap and give her attention and tell her she was a good kid. He'd go out and buy her clothes and make her feel good about herself. Trigger warning again, he almost instantly starts molesting her, and from this point on, David was regularly raping her. David promised the 11-year-old that someday he'd marry her, and that allowing him to molest her would make her develop into a proper lady, a woman. So when her chest starts developing a little later, she thought that David was God. Quote, she just thought that's the way it went in a normal house. I think we already touched on, she was one of 11 kids. Yes. She was already molested. She probably never had a lot of her mother's attention, let alone undivided attention. So when a predator is appearing like someone she can trust, someone who thinks she's special, someone who gives her that attention that every child deserves, but not all parents are able to give due to various circumstances, she's primed to be a victim. And then for him, when he knows she's on the cusp of puberty, to say, if you let me do this, you'll turn into a woman. You'll turn into a woman, knowing that that's going to happen anyway. It's inevitable. Of course, she believes him. Of course, she thinks this is how it happened to her mom and her older sisters and every adult that she sees. It's normal and it's natural and it's fucking sick for him to use her puberty. And the fact that he was attracted to her and molesting her before she even hit puberty, it's also fucked up. I have two major issues with our story at this point. And it's building on what you said a second ago about how she has this reinforced belief in David 
and how he has this awareness of things that she might not even know are attainable. We talked about it in the Nexium episode, but I think this is an engineered epiphany, right? Wholeheartedly. He's hurting her and saying, if I hurt you, X will happen, knowing it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. When our victims just think it's, oh, they're that great. And it's no, it just reinforces the circle of victimization. I don't want to go on a tangent here, but I feel so strongly as a survivor of sexual assault, I hate the notion that sexually abused kids are just done. Mm-hmm. You don't have to safeguard them from things or right. you don't have to protect their innocence or the fact that they're not aware of certain harsh real life milestones almost mm-hmm. when they're fucking 11. I hate that from her perspective. She's 11. She's already been sexually assaulted. It's like, no, that shouldn't be a reason to give your daughter to a man you don't know. It probably contributes to why survivors of child assault and child molestation are more likely to be repeat survivors mm-hmm. of sexual assault, sexual abuse, rape. It's almost deemed acceptable. I'm not saying this because I believe it, but it's going to sound harsh. It's like we think that if you've already been abused or assaulted, and we think this about a lot of things, a lot of things and a lot of men and women and non-binary people, but especially children, it's like if you've already been exposed to that, if that's already happened to you, then oh, you're done. There's nothing left to protect There's you from. There's nothing left to protect you from, and you still have to protect them. You do, because trauma is accumulative. It's true. This is my tangent. I think that this speaks a lot to the sex education mm-hmm. that children and teens get from their parents or from school. If you're taught about what's normal and that your body is normal and you're taught what happens to your body and that to no even. one should be able to touch your body without your consent, including your parents, including your doctors, and it would help prevent victimization so much. When it's avoidable, I think it's especially. It's so avoidable. If someone had talked to Patty yes. and been like, these are the changes your body... I'm not saying that this never happened, right. but if they had said, this, these are the changes that your body is going to go through. She had this engineer epiphany with David and really thought that this is what love looked like and she wouldn't have been as susceptible to the following crimes. Exactly. And I think that's valid. It's a lot like that documentary we saw. Kidnapped in Plain Sight. Right. You said this the last time we recorded, but... You're like, it's even more tangible and believable than the alien abduction story. Yes, it is. But when we're in a traumatic situation, I think we rationalize things however we can. I'm speaking from my own experiences, but I think Cinnamon did too, as well as Patty. Mm -hmm. You cannot fathom the idea that the person who's supposed to be supporting you and loving you right now is your abuser. It's almost worse than acknowledging that they're hurting you. It's not. Logically, we have a healing process, but that idea too of minor especially in these positions it's just not gonna but i can also speak to that in a way you never want to think the person whose job is to protect you is hurting you exactly and you will fight and defend to keep from facing that reality because it is too much for a child to handle exactly i think these girls and alan for that matter they were unfairly targeted Mm -hmm. by a repeat predator who had at this point kind of mastered his skills Mm -hmm. for being honest when it comes to luring in women, obtaining women, and then controlling their every aspect in the form of seeming love and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Her siblings grew up thinking this was normal from the same guy. Yeah. So I think even worse, Patty, they were already, they watched their older sister do it. Why would this yeah. not be acceptable? If you really think about it, I don't know, when it came to all of my cousins and growing up and hitting milestones, I remember ex- Explicitly being like, this isn't scary because so-and-so already had this. Mm-hmm. It's not the same, but it's similar. So like for these girls, the fact that it's the same man 
man, I cannot even imagine how that compounded and contributed to the fact that they were all hurt by him. And we're both the oldest, so we can't speak to this exactly, but younger sisters or younger siblings really want to emulate their older siblings. Yeah. And so it makes sense that especially if it's the same guy. It's like they're special now. It's their turn. Yeah. And that's not how life works. Linda did this. But as a small child with siblings, I 100% believe that that's a mindset that you could slip into. Right. This was a different time, I think, in the 1980s. Very much latchkey kid culture. As well as I don't think people, even now people, are not trained to question successful men who seem to have their shit together. Mm -hmm. Let alone in this instance when it was the creepy guy in the muscle shirts taking little girls for ice cream like of course i wish more people would have stepped in i'm not convinced it would have happened now though no i would love to sit here in 2021 everything's changed we're different but realistically the same problems are happening children that don't need to be victimized are continuing to be victimized because people still don't question the people that they should be we went big off the rails from the story cinnamon was 14 when she moved in but patty was 11 Patty lived with him since she was 11. Got you. No, she was older by two years. Cinnamon okay. was 14 at the time of the story. Good clarification. She moved in with him when she was 14. So actually, she probably lived with him before Cinnamon ever did. Sad. Really sad. And we're going to get into way sadder shit about Cinnamon's living quarters specifically. So Cinnamon Newer suspected that David and his sister-in-law, Patty, were having an inappropriate relationship because she'd caught them kissing once. An inappropriate relationship, Mm -hmm. I guess, is the Cinnamon perspective to put on this. She said she caught them kissing once, but Ethel, Bailey, and family don't think Linda ever knew David was raping her sister. That might be a very kind view. Yes. Of their daughter and sister, but we'll never know. We'll never know. David was excelling in data processing and he started his own company called Data Recovery and it was a huge success, unfortunately. At his best, he was raking in $175,000 a year and he received praise as a disaster specialist in the computer world for developing software capable of retrieving lost data and other systems. He received letters of praise from the Air Force, Rockwell International, and Northrop. We'll go with it. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) As early on as 19 1983, David begins telling Cinnamon and Patty that he's scared of Linda. As early on as 1983, David begins telling Cinnamon and Patty that he's scared of Linda. He said that she wanted to break up their family, and he tells the girls that Linda and her twin brother, Alan, had connections to the mob and wanted to kill him to take his money and the business that he built. The only way he'd ever truly feel safe is if his enemies were eliminated. Okay. How does that make you feel? Furious. I think I have more to say in a minute. Okay. So Cinnamon suggests divorce because she's iconic mm-hmm. and her dad seemed to be really good at it. And maybe he could qualify for like a punch card or something at the courthouse. Please tell me she actually said punch card. No, that's just me bullshitting. And she was like, dad, just divorce her. So dad. she was straight up logical. Fair. She just said, dad, get a divorce. It'll okay. be the fifth. The fifth? Yeah. The fifth. It'll hurt, but no more than the first four. Fifth one's free, right? I assume. I wonder if lawyers do that. If, like, you can go so many times to them and they're like, listen, this one's on me. <laughs> I don't know. I think there has to be deals, though, if you think. If it's, like, a personal injury lawyer. I don't know. Anyway. Anyway. Oh, my God. So, David says absolutely not. He will not be divorced for the fifth time. Linda knew too much about his business and could compete against him. Plus... He just didn't want to pay alimony because he never had to do that before. He never had anything to fucking share or offer. True. So, so he what, was he even paying alimony? No. Cinnamon's mom? I don't think so. That's so gross. I can't say. I, I shouldn't have said. My voice just 
jumped no, several No, you're fine. Octaves. I just, I shouldn't have said distinctly no. Purely speculation. He's the type that would Listen. not support his baby mama. The news love men. The news outlet would say, well, he was paying for cinnamon the whole time. Would they not? They would. It's just irrelevant at the end of the day. But He's they, still but, but they would have said it and they didn't. So he obviously was not supporting his child from his first marriage. Anyway, I haven't watched Fox mm, since 2014. I did this summer. Why would you do that? My uncle put it on. Oh, that's funny. When the Trump rally was in Tulsa. That's really funny. Moving on. I like the mob job. You guys, my wife and her twin brother connected to the mob. They want my business. That's some Irish shit. Like, shut the fuck up, David. I've still got to show you The Godfather. We've got to move on. We're so off the rails. You're right. Okay, 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 okay. Patty said, quote, David was everything to her. He was her family. If she thought he was going to be taken away, that'd be like pulling the plug, end quote. <sighs> she Did... was the only person who ever showed him support. Yeah. Like, he was the only person who ever showed her support. Yes. He was the only person, I think, who saw her or validated her or at the time when she believed those feelings were supposed to look like. Right. David said he was too frail from the cancer to kill Linda himself. Even though there's no way this story fits in six months. They were children. They couldn't call him on that, I guess. But I have to assume if someone's like, why don't you just get divorced? Someone else was like, are you a walking miracle? I don't know. Right. Since they were teenagers, David explained it made more sense for one of them to commit the crime because police wouldn't be interested in arresting children. Cinnamon says it was because he didn't have the stomach for it, though, which is probably more accurate. So he was a coward. Yes. And a pedophile and a rapist. And a dirtbag. A fucking dirtbag. I also think, I'm not sure if that speaks to his lack of knowledge with the legal system or if that was his justification to manipulate the children in his house. We'll probably never know. However, I feel like it could be both. I bet he's exaggerating and exploiting minors mm -hmm. and scaring the shit out of them. Right. Because he's capable, frankly. Mm -hmm. It's easy. It's easier to than to field their questions. Right. However, I also, I mean, the legal system's weird and complex to people in law school. I barely understand it. So to the girlfriends of people read. in law school, <laughs> we're just like, huh? Okay, just smile and nod. Smile and nod. That's what I do. <laughs> I don't know anything about nothing. So do you want to hear the most famous line from this case that makes it notorious? Yes. Cinnamon would testify against her father that he would repeat over and over to her and Patty, quote, if you loved me, you would do this for me. That is the tagline of abusers. Yes. If you loved me, you would do this for me. X, Y, Z. If you loved me, these are the links you'd go to. I think that is almost, I don't know. Is that a childhood trauma response to be like, someone didn't love me because this happened? I yeah. think that's really fucked up that he was using this tagline on children who already have this, what's it called? Not egocentric. But this kind of belief that the world really does revolve around them a little bit. And that, like, mm -hmm. everything is so impactful. And, like, you have a part in everything. Right. So it's so fucking shitty. This guy comes in and tells you, if you loved me, though. To kids who already kind of believe that if someone loved them or if something good was happening, then the bad would not have. Or if the bad happened, it was their fault. Exactly. And they have this trauma. And they're carrying that. And so if he says, if you loved me, the way I love you is the unspoken part because they believe that's love you would do this because i do all these things for you ignoring 
the mass abuse that's happening. Right. And I, they clearly believed him. Mm -hmm. They believed him about if this was a sign of their love, they would do it. They believed mm -hmm. him about not having a lot of repercussions, mm -hmm. the whole nine yards. Right. So plotting Linda's murder turns into a twisted family ritual almost. And David quickly singles Cinnamon out as the gunman. He claimed this is because she's the youngest. And according to his inaccurate portrayal of the justice system, she was least likely to be held accountable because she was the youngest. He promised Cinnamon that the worst police would do would require her to attend a few sessions with a psychiatrist. For fun, he would have the girls practice writing suicide notes, and then he'd have them flush them down the toilet or burn them. Sidebar. Can you imagine the trauma of being forced to write your own suicide note? Absolutely not. By someone who is supposed to love and protect you. And almost as if this is just a fun downtime exercise. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine sitting with my closest cousins and friends and one of you guys looking at me in a silence and being like, should we practice writing suicide notes? It's so deeply fucked up. And I can't imagine the long-term repercussions of having to picture your own death and justify why it happened. And then he's gaslighting them because mm -hmm. he's like, then destroy it to prove to me you're capable of doing this and not leaving a trail. Mm -hmm. David said that if the girls faked suicides, they wouldn't get in trouble, which is not how anything works. So he planned on killing them. I believe so. In February of 1985, David wakes Patty up and tells her that it's time to kill Linda. She stood behind her sister's bedroom door holding the gun, and she said, quote, she couldn't do it. She was her sister. She loved her. And Patty was only 17. This is where I want to add a blanket trigger warning. The yeah. whole thing is... We're about to get into the crime. March 19th, 1985, a month after Patty's failed attempt to kill her own sister. Mm -hmm. Everyone was asleep except for David. Linda was alone in the master bedroom. Baby Crystal is asleep in her crib. Mm -hmm. The girls are asleep. Cinnamon and Patty are woken up by David sometime after midnight. And he says, quote, it has to be done tonight. Patty hands Cinnamon a gun wrapped in a towel and then stands by the baby's crib. David holds a handful of pills for Cinnamon to take when she's done and stands in the doorway waiting. Mm -hmm. Linda was sleeping under a blue blanket when the first shot landed in her chest and the pillow that Cinnamon had been instructed to use gets jammed in the hammer of the gun. She panics and then hears seven-month-old Crystal cry out. Linda groaned and Cinnamon screamed, quote, she's not dead. Cinnamon runs out of the room and someone returns, fires again into Linda's chest. By 4 a.m., Garden Grove, California police respond to a frantic call from David Brown to find his wife, 23-year-old Linda Marie mm. Bailey, dead in her bed from two gunshot wounds to the chest. There was a revolver on the floor, and David tells authorities he got frustrated from hearing Linda and his 14-year-old daughter Cinnamon bickering, so he left in the middle of the night, stopped by a convenience store, bought some comic books and fruit pies, but most importantly, spoke to the clerk. David said he arrived back at home at 3.25 a.m. to Patty, his 17-year-old sister-in-law, telling him she heard gunshots, which prompted him to call the police. He said his daughter had been acting strangely and was trying to obtain counseling for her. Mm -hmm. I don't buy that. No. I, it's a freaking irritating thing. That's why I said it so awkwardly. Mm -hmm. My thing is, not only did he give himself an alibi, he gave Cinnamon a motive. Yes. She's been acting strangely. Uh -huh. They were bickering earlier. That's why I left. That's why I have an alibi. He's full of shit. He's full of shit. Patty notices exactly what you're talking about and follows David's lead. And she tells the police she locked herself in her bedroom until David returned. They exaggerate more and more, adding on that Cinnamon's crazy and like to talk to imaginary friends and just completely throw her under the bus. Ugh. Police find empty prescription pain pill bottles prescribed to David on the laundry room floor, but nobody knew where Cinnamon actually was. 
she usually stayed in a trailer outside of the main house and that trailer was empty. I hate that detail. It's my least favorite part of this whole story. They search the property and finally find the teenager in and out of consciousness, curled up in the family doghouse, and she's seizing and vomiting while in her right hand, she's clutching a note that reads, quote, Dear God, please forgive me. I didn't mean to hurt her. So a suicide now that he's had her practice writing. Yes. And I think that's the most disturbing part of the story to me. She was curled up in the doghouse. Yes. It totally shows how much David valued his daughter. His daughter. Yes. That I believe he was there for the entire crime. Mm-hmm. He had cinnamon take pills. He put her in the doghouse, not even her trailer where she lived, probably because she knew that her father was molesting his sister-in-law. Her low-key surrogate sister. I just cannot reconcile her being in the doghouse. I just can't. No, it's it's tragic. I know it's that's genuinely off topic, heartbreaking. But... No, it wasn't. Cinnamon told paramedics she swallowed all of the pills and all of the bottles prescribed to her father. And at the hospital, she's formally charged and under arrest for murder. She only responded to this by repeating, quote, she loves her father. She claimed to have had amnesia or no memory of the crime at all as well. That's the, the story she sticks to mm-hmm. for about three years. Her trial is scheduled and everyone assumes she'll, she'll be found guilty. Mm-hmm. It seemed to be an open and shut case. Despite the teenager's confession, though, Jane Newell, a district attorney's investigator, wasn't satisfied with the outcome of the trial or the direction it was going. And he continues to dig. He's bothered specifically by the lack of fingerprints on the gun and the lack of gunshot residue on Cinnamon's hands. It's even more confusing when the lab results returned positive for gunshot residue from Patty's palms. But the presiding judge didn't think that any of this mattered, and he finds her guilty and sentences Cinnamon to 27 years to life. David says that he was in too much pain to attend the trial, but that's bullshit. He'd already forgotten about his daughter and acted like he didn't have one now that she did what he needed her to. Dirtbag. Dirtbag. David immediately dives headfirst into living lavishly after his wife's untimely death, cashing out on multiple life insurance policies, two of which he opened months leading up to her death. Altogether, the insurance payout amounts to a little over $1 million, but Hmm. David's fucking stupid and misses a deadline, so he only receives approximately $835,000. Only, I say. I'm just happy he didn't get a whole million. I know that's a really low bar. For having the bar that we do going through all of these cases, good he didn't get a million dollars. Yeah. Sad he got anything. Agreed. Oh, and he marries his underage sister-in-law, Patty Ann, who needed the signature of Ethel since she's only 17, all before his daughter's convicted. Fucking gross. Yes. Cinnamon didn't believe she'd been manipulated and set up by David, mostly because he occasionally visited her and brings her nice gifts that some would call payoffs, probably just so that she'd continue taking the fall for him. And he conveniently neglected all of these visits to mention that he married Patty on July 1st, 1986, and had a child with her. David was purchasing multiple homes, one of which he paid for in cash. That was $350,000. And for the third time in Cinnamon's life, David abandons her. Orange County Deputy District Attorney Jeffrey Robinson said that Miss Brown began cooperating with investigators after three years of being incarcerated. At 17, and maybe for the first time in her whole life, She gets mad at her father. She was stuck monitored in a youth detention center while he's out there buying homes in cash with his former sister-in-law, Patricia Ann Bailey, who at this time is 20, Hmm. Robinson said. Quote, our belief is that Cinnamon Brown might not have been as culpable as she herself thought she was. We will surely make it all clear, all the facts, so that we can evaluate. Quote, he's not saying that she's totally without any participation, but then again, she was a 14-year-old girl who was directed out of the love and loyalty of her father. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Joel Baruch, Cinnamon's first criminal defense attorney, said, quote, David clearly set the whole thing into motion. Robinson assigned the same DA investigator, Jay, to look into the crime and David and Patty's actions since it occurred to see if there were any details that didn't make it into the trial that should have or details that might have made a difference in finding Cinnamon guilty. It was one of the easiest jobs for Jay. He followed David's unsuccessful attempts at marriages. He tracked the insurance payoff. He noted that David seemed to believe he avoided a divorce, paying alimony, and protected himself from Linda, taking half of everything that they built together, and that she was entitled to. I think it's also important to say, because I asked this, he was still using the cancer card all yes. throughout this whole time, right? I'm pretty sure. Well beyond six months, he was acting like he was dying. Yeah. <laughs> So the nail in the coffin for David was when Cinnamon starts cooperating with Jay to piece all of this together. She tells him about the control her father exerted over her daily leading up to the murder. She tells him how she knew the murder was happening, but she didn't want to participate in it. She tells him that she had to kill her stepmom, but only after David screamed at her to do it and Patty passed her a gun. She said she was willing to kill Linda because, quote, she loved him. She didn't want to lose her father. Why would he tell her to do something that wasn't all right? Jay asked if Cinnamon would consent to helping police officers affirm all of this over a tape-recorded conversation next time David visited. She set the bait by telling him that she was scheduled to meet with the parole board and they instructed her to tell the whole truth about her crime. And that alone made David come running. Oh my God. It's annoying. After not talking to her for over three years. Right, because her trial was too, too painful for him to sit through. Right. His quote from this recording is, he can't survive in jail. Don't tell police the whole truth. He would kill himself before he'd let himself die a slow and painful death in a cell. Well, we know why. Because yeah. what happens to pedophiles in jail? The complaint against Brown lists 11 overt acts of conspiracy to commit murder, including discussing the killing with Patty beforehand and recruiting Cinnamon by telling her that his wife, Linda, was planning to kill him. After David was arrested at 37, he tries to frame Patty as a mastermind behind her own sister's murder. He admitted to talking to the girls about the crime, but insisted it was a joke or a game and that he was shocked when Linda was murdered. He declared his innocence and said he was set up through the vendetta practices of the prosecutors and that he was set up from the lives of his 20-year-old daughter and 22-year-old, I guess, ex-wife, Patty. Strange wife? Either. Victim. Well, she couldn't testify against him if she was his wife, could she? I, well, she was his wife, but there is a thing legally where if you are a survivor of sexual assault, you may testify against your abuser, even if that's your husband. I do feel like we've talked about this before. Is that what you wanted me to Google when this trend became a thing? Yes, that was it. That makes I sense. I wanted to know. I thought you couldn't testify against your spouse no matter what. That There's a new exception. Okay. It's precluded usually, but not from survivors of childhood sexual assault. It's very confusing. This was totally what I wanted you to Google. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I'll look into it for sure. So when accusing Patty of the whole thing doesn't work, police catch David offering another inmate who's an undercover cop $22,700 to quote, make it worth his while to kill Patty, Jay, and the lead prosecutor, Jeffrey Robinson. David tells a female inmate that she needed to come forward after the hit on Patty is completed and say that Patty told her she made the whole thing up about him and lied. David said, quote, he takes care of people and that's how he's managed to get ahead. During his trial, the court was horrified to learn more details about the crime. Mainly, he manipulated his daughter and sister-in-law into murdering his wife for him. At the time of the shooting, he screamed in Cinnamon's face, quote, just go into the bedroom and do it fire the gun. So how long did it take for him to crack to his cellmate who was an undercover cop? 
I want to say he starts talking almost instantly. David goes in and then it's just a gold mine. He thinks he's smarter than everybody and that everyone's as manipulatable and easily fooled as your sister-in-law and daughter who are in positions that they should be capable of trusting you. As children. Yes. That's so gross. Okay. So Cinnamon's also forced to write her own suicide note. And then when she didn't want to take her own life, David made her swallow his pain pills. Mm-hmm. After seven hours, a jury convicted David of first-degree murder for financial gain. He's sentenced to life in prison in 1990, and he dies in prison at the age of 61 in 2014 from natural causes. He died in protective housing because everyone heard about how he killed his fifth wife for money and pinned it on his daughter so he couldn't just be in Gen Pop. Serves him right. Yeah, I don't feel bad. Ethel Bailey said, quote, David took her daughter's life and she wants that man to hang. Justice can't do enough to convict him. Can we take a moment for how Ethel Bailey was not a bad mom? She was not a bad mom. She was taken advantage of and likely busting her ass to provide for 11 children. Mm -hmm. 11. She did, I think, her best to give her daughters the freedom and autonomy and like trying to respect their choices. Mm -hmm. And I don't think if she had an inkling of the idea of the things that were happening and that her daughters thought were normal, that any of this would have happened. I also don't think it's fair to assume a single mom of 11 can work to support 11 children and give 11 children the kind of love and support that they need for a parent i think she did her best and defend them from pedophiles serial yeah. pedophile mm-hmm. and rapists david brown took advantage of that i agree david's own brother said quote as far as he's concerned he doesn't have a brother anymore anyone who could screw his family like this isn't part of the family they trusted him so the pedophilia wasn't enough it was the murder if that made his brother cut him off his brother cites the fact he screwed the family over yeah. i don't think there's a lot to expound on but you're right it's a weird thing but of all of the things to prioritize yes i don't know if that's the first four even patty turns on david as soon as she learns that he tried to frame her for murdering linda she pled guilty and testified against david at his trial After Patty is sentenced to California Youth Academy, she and Cinnamon are actually incarcerated in the same institution. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, I think as minors, they're really able to bond over the fact they're both taken advantage of by the same man. Mm -hmm. And he was going down for it, but they were also unable to deny that any of this was normal or okay. And they really had to, had I think, the first opportunity to heal in light of the truth, if that makes sense. It does. They were together without having David's influence cloud what they knew to be true and manipulating what they knew to be true. Yes. When she's released, she marries a prison guard. In 1992, at the age of 21, Cinnamon's paroled from prison. According to public records, she married Frank Leonard Padula in Nevada in 1993 when he was 25. Mm-hmm. Her husband would commit suicide at the age of 40, but Cinnamon goes on to marry a member of law enforcement and she eventually has a son as well. Crystal, Linda's baby, was raised by David's mother and she was told that her mom died in a car wreck, but she found out the truth when she was 13. She's a writer and she says she hopes to get in touch with Cinnamon and Patty one day, but I found an article where she did, quote, she thinks it's time she told everyone something. She finally met Patty face to face a little while back. She couldn't cry. It wasn't from a lack of emotion. It was from the fact that she came to terms with everything long ago and forgave Patty long before she ever talked to her. She wants everyone to know that Patty cried a lot and Crystal knew she had to let it all out. And all Crystal did was hug her and tell her it was okay and that she forgives her completely and blamed her for absolutely nothing. Patty was a victim just as much as Crystal was in her eyes. And she plans on spending more time with Patty and hopes to get to know her better. Another quote is, we have a lot to catch up on after all. 
Crystal wants everyone to know that the woman that a lot of them hated is non-existent and that they've read and heard and seen on TV about someone that she hasn't ever seen and that definitely wasn't the same person she met. She wants everyone to keep in mind that this tragedy happened over 30 years ago and that she knows that Patty's changed a lot since then and that she can only imagine the pain and heartache and torment Patty went through. And I think what's beautiful about this is the fact that she's not only able to support another victim and survivor, but I love that she emphasized that this happened before she was walking. Mm -hmm. This was a trauma she endured, but she's moved past it. Her life isn't confined to David or her mother's horrific murder. Mm -hmm. There was a light on the other side for her, and it's just, it is so beautiful and mature and inspiring that she was able to be that supportive of other victims, let alone her aunts her aunt well her aunt and her half sister i think it speaks so much to all of these women that they entered hopefully happy marriages they had children they were able to grow beyond the abuse that david brown put them through i think that's the beauty of this story is that cinnamon and patty and crystal were all able to move past it and forgive each other and forgive yeah. themselves in a way i think so too and allow themselves to create new life and to create a new life for themselves I'm really hopeful of the fact that Cinnamon was paroled. Yeah. That's incredible. That's unique to a lot of the stories it's that we talk very about. Very unique. Like you said, these girls were not only defined by the trauma they endured, and their lives matter more, and at the end of the day, have more value than what David saw in them and used them for. And he got what he deserved. He died alone. Yeah, and he prison. couldn't hurt anybody anymore. That's it for me. Me too. I never wish death upon anyone. I never wish pain upon anyone, but he couldn't hurt anyone anymore, and that's no. all I could ask for. I agree. That's kind of justice, in my opinion, but that, that's different for everybody. Yeah. I think Cinnamon saw justice. And that's cool too. I think the fact that in some way, at least Cinnamon and Patty and Crystal, poor Linda obviously did not get her justice. And Ethel, her mom's gonna live with this forever. That's true. Until she dies. It's true. At least Cinnamon and Patty and Crystal were able to rebuild and move on in some way and heal in some way. I know that's a continuous process. Yeah. That's gonna be with them their entire lives. Right. But to me, that's one of the happiest endings you can get from a story I of trafficking and abuse. If you guys have suggestions of trafficking survivors in America or related, you can email those to trafficked, trafficked in America podcast at gmail.com or you can follow us on Instagram and DM us there at trafficked podcast or you can follow us on Twitter and DM us there on traffic EOD for trafficked pod. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Do something nice for yourself. Have a glass of wine. Treat yourself. You've earned it. Treat yourself, indeed.